Welcome to Wilderness Podcast, a passion project about wilderness and wild places, with your host, Adam Bronstein. In this episode, I interview Sarah Walker with friends of Bridger Teton. We discuss the increase in visitation numbers to Greater Yellowstone and surrounding national forest land, including wilderness areas, and what that means for land managers and conservation groups trying to protect wildlife and minimize human impacts. We discuss Leave No Trace ethics, the differences between primitive and dispersed camping, and what you can do when visiting our public lands to be a better steward, the Continental Divide Trail, off-road vehicle use, and more. There is one item from this interview I wanted to clarify. I stated seeing a monster truck in a wilderness area that I was visiting, and I didn't actually see the truck. I just saw the aftermath and damage to stream banks and vegetation. It also very well could have been just multiple ATVs driving up and down. But nonetheless, I wanted to let people know that this is an issue, and it's an incursion and trespass into wilderness. There's a reason we don't allow mechanization. We're trying to keep these places as pristine as possible. And with that said, I bring you Sarah Walker, and thanks so much for listening. So how long have you lived in Dubois now? Six years. Six years. Yeah. And, um, and before that, you were in Jackson? Jackson, Laramie, and came from Maryland in 06. Originally? Yeah. Yeah, I'm East Coast, too. I'm from, from Syracuse, New York. Okay. And then, yeah, I've sort of bounced around a little bit. But So this is my 18th year now, coming out to Greater Yellowstone. Wow. And, yeah, I just try to make it a, a annual. point every year, an annual. Just It's got to happen, so I just plan the whole year around it, essentially. And Very nice. You know, I've been meeting some of the same friends out here that long, and, you know, it's really it's really been a lot of fun. So Nice. Just falling in love with this area. Yeah. As, as you have too, I'd imagine. It's hard not to. And you came from Bend? Yeah, I live in Bend. Okay. I live in the Bend area. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah, and the Greater Yellowstone is for sure a special place. So what did you do in Laramie? I got my master's in natural resources. I came back here right after. I worked for the Wyoming Wilderness Association for a little while. Mm-hmm. Worked with the Shoshone National Forest here. Got kind of attuned to the budget crises that the forest was going through mm-hmm. and you know here we're right on the border of the Shoshone National Forest and the Bridger Teton National Forest which is nice the Bridger Teton had the incentive to really and the mission to have a friends group because their visitor use is just skyrocketing yeah I, had, I know a sheriff in from Sublette County okay. and he was telling me about just all the search and rescue operations this year and the winds that the it's winds. just it's just been crazy it has been crazy. Um, there's, yeah, so the Bridger Teton is large, three mm-hmm. and a half million acres, but you've got the Wind Rivers and the Wyoming Range, which is really remote, and then all of the spillover outside of Jackson in the Teton area. Um, but the winds are, winds are a special example of just how rapidly a place can become popular, and the resources just haven't been there to keep up. I remember a, a Backpacker Magazine article back in, it might have been the early 2000s, but, you know, the Elkhart Park trailhead was mm-hmm. pretty quiet. And then it seemed right around that time when that article came out, it just started getting really busy up there. And Dubois reminds me a lot of what Pinedale was like you know, 15, 20 years ago. Could you tell the difference going through Pinedale? Yeah. Really? Yeah, there's a lot of new restaurants, and I almost didn't recognize it. Um, and the, the oil and gas development is, is really taken off, and just a, a lot more people are coming out. So, 
Yeah. And it's had its pros and its cons, like Pinedale is now a CBT gateway community, and so there's a lot of... Continental Divide Trail. Yep. Um, They're one of the first gateway communities in Wyoming, Mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of local support and interest in taking better care of those trails, and especially the weed-no-trace issue in the winds. So the... Is the Highline Trail? Is that that's no longer called the Highline anymore, is it? It's, I think that's called the CDT now. I did not know that. I think maybe is it called both? It might. I mean, be. I know that be. that's one of the CDTers' most popular trails. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, everybody that hikes the entire CDT says that Highline stretch is a highlight for them. Um, I'm not sure about the naming. And then we saw a bunch of you know um, hikers uh, hitchhiking right through town so it seems like the cdt is getting more popular and yep i just got off the phone with the continental divide trail coalition uh-huh. they've been helping with the adopt a trail program out of pinedale and what's the adopt a trail program out of here um the continental divide trail coalition has an adopter training program where they then ask locals to just kind of monitor stretches of the trail mm-hmm. so it's a really great model for locals to take some ownership over a stretch of trail and really just keep the foresters up to date on trail maintenance issues. It's not too labor intensive, but yeah, I was telling the CDTC guys that there's just been a huge influx of CDTers right in this last week. Yeah. Um, well, one thing I wanted to mention to you, and I, I won't give specific examples now because we're, uh, well, the specific location now because we're recording, but once we're done, I'll let you know exactly where it was. But my friend and I were in the wilderness, in a designated wilderness area, and a monster truck came through. Like a literal monster? A literal monster truck. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I've seen ATVs kind of sneak into the boundary once in a while you know, maybe a little meadow damage here or there, but this was egregious. I had never seen anything like this. It was, it was a wide, wide track. The tires were probably two feet wide and they drove right up this Creek. Um, and and again, after we're done recording, I'll tell you exactly where where it is. And, um, I'm going to call the, uh, the forest service office as well. But, um, yeah, I mean, illegal off-road vehicle use seems to be an issue, and I don't know, maybe you can speak to that a little bit. Yeah, and um, I mean, I think that's one of the one of the reasons I was so attuned to the fire services budget and staff shortages is we are, we are seeing a lot of that here on the Shoshone and on the BT. And there's really just a shortage of boots on the ground and staff to be enforcing those regulations and um as one of the one of the thoughts for the friends group is to actually provide solutions and help instead of just pointing out that that there was that issue there. Um, it's such a big area. It's it, and volunteers yeah. really help, but you still can't have eyes everywhere, right? Exactly. So, so maybe it's just a matter of like just finding where there's lots of tracks over time, and then maybe monitoring those areas, especially in the in the designated wilderness. I mean, there's a lot outside of the wilderness. There are definitely concerns of OHV creep, but um, in a designated wilderness area, that's... So could you explain um, for listeners the, the rules with off-road, off-highway vehicles, OHVs, and where they can and cannot go? Absolutely. And, and why why we're talking about encroachment into the wilderness is, is really not cool. 
Yeah, so designated wilderness is, you know, that's written into the Wilderness Act that there's no mechanized travel. So that's a that's a serious trespass. But then we also have a different level is is really just the travel travel motorized routes. All motorized vehicles need to stay on designated routes and you know that a route is open if it's marked with a number on it. And around here we do have a lot of roads that haven't been effectively closed and there's no closed sign but if you don't see a open road number you shouldn't be traveling on it can people ride up the river banks like they like they do in the commercials they cannot no on on designated routes only so why is it why is it not a good idea to to ride up and down the 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 river banks in the riparian areas so the the erosion damage uh, is Hugely consequential, especially in, I'm imagining, the area you were with a pretty healthy fishery. Our wildlife populations are so special here and so sensitive to road and especially uh, travel disturbance that's unexpected is the most disturbing to wildlife. You know, if they know a route is being traveled, it's it's less disruptive than kind of off-road disturbances. So there's a very clear correlation between vehicle use and wildlife habitat and wildlife use. Absolutely. Yeah, our roadless areas are really our sink population, for our source population for wildlife around here. So people people should care. People should care. Absolutely. Yeah, and designated wilderness areas are just, there are so few of them and so much work was put into protecting those places. And those rules are very clear cut. Mm -hmm. Did you notice, was there an opportunity for better signage like did that person know that they were uh it it was off of a of a back road it was off of a jeep trail you know it it was a clearly it was a designated jeep trail that we went into but from there you can get down to the river and then you can you can just go wherever you want and it was a monster truck so (laughs) so so you could you could climb whatever you wanted and go wherever you wanted so um yeah it was a little it was a little crazy but but it's still, you know, still a beautiful area. Um, always is. Um, it's just heartbreaking to to visit these wild places year after year and see them more or less respected, and then to come back and to see that. Yeah, and there are probably varying levels of that kind of that kind of trespass. And in some cases, really, education might be all that's needed. It's better signage or a better presence explaining why that's not allowed. And then, of course, there are always some people that just aren't going to care. They're going to do it anyways. No no amount of signage is going to do it. And then that's when you really need boots on the ground enforcing those things. So tell me about the friends of Bridger Teton. Uh, Sure. Tell me about your organization and and your position. Yeah. So we just started up in October and just received our 501c3. Congratulations. Um, It's a conversation that's been in the work for at least five years. Uh, The Bridger Teton has been talking with local communities about what a friends group would mean for the national forest and for local communities and really the greater Yellowstone as a whole. Mm -hmm. Um, And the need really just came from a huge increase in visitor use. You know, Yellowstone seeing record numbers. Our national park campgrounds are full at nine in the morning. And then you have this spillover into our national forests, um, which have, Fantastic, you know, diverse recreational opportunities, uh, great free dispersed camping, but all that stuff 
comes with the need for extra uh, resources to manage it. And so that's really the, the impetus behind the Friends Group is just being able to support the National Forest when they're seeing increased visitor use but a decrease in their recreation budget and staff. All right. So can you explain what primitive camping is? So primitive camping, dispersed primitive Disperf- camping. Dispersed camping, yeah. Um, primitive camping, you're not at a campground, but you should still be on a designated route if you're driving. And then primitive camping is just backpacking. You should still be camping in an already previously disturbed campsite, which I'm sure you were doing this yes. weekend. Yeah, we were. Yep, yeah, we had a uh, we had our shovels for waste and very nice. Uh, we made sure that our campsite was better than we left it. Very nice. Tried to stay off the vegetation. Um, put our fire out when we left, and. Um, yeah, I mean, we're all going to have impacts regardless, right? Absolutely. But it's just a matter of trying to minimize Minimizing them. Minimizing them. So, so yeah. what, what can folks do when they're, when they're visiting uh, these dispersed sites? Dispersed yeah. sites. Um, yeah, so in the primitive and designated wilderness areas, like you were saying, that's, those regulations are super important and well laid out in all the weed no trace literature. It's just staying 200 feet from a stream making sure you're leaving no trace, uh, camping on previously disturbed sites. Dispersed camping, it's a lot more, we see a lot more car camping, Mm -hmm. uh, and that has its own challenges because that's an additional uh, resource damage. But especially in that kind of front country dispersed camping, you get even more pressure than you do in the wilderness, um, especially at some of the more popular trailheads. And so Again, it's the same the same thought of leave no trace, packing out what you take in, especially when you have a vehicle at your disposal. Mm-hmm. There's no, no real reason not to. And and digging a hole and trying to not create new routes is probably one of the biggest issues we see with dispersed car camping. Yeah, so that spillover from those established sites, uh, campgrounds, really has an impact, right? Yep, and, and some people just, just prefer that, right, to get away from the crowds a little bit. Um, so by taking care of these dispersed sites, the forest service will leave them open for use. Right. So, um, just like maybe this off-road issue and, uh, damage in wilderness areas, you know, sometimes they put gates up, right. Because it just becomes too much to manage and the destruction ends up not being worth the access. And then people get real upset. So, if we can all just take care of these places, then we don't have to close them off. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of this tough position to be in. So, so what is your group doing to, to help ensure that these places stay open for everybody? Yeah. So, um, in some of our more popular front country camping areas, the forest itself is implemented, you know, where it used to be dispersed camping and it was a little obscure, what was actually a campsite. So then you could start making a new campsite Mm -hmm. and not, not be sure if you were legal or not is designating those campsites with numbers um, and making kind of legitimizing the campsite and that overall just people see that it's a, a legitimate well-managed area and mm-hmm. it instills a fair amount of respect just in that in itself but it also has deterred just the creep of additional campsites um we've also had volunteer ambassadors camping out at some of the more popular dispersed campsites and that's really kind of a a neat in-between solution between having to 
charge people when you don't have enough resources to manage that kind of pressure. But having a volunteer is just a win-win for somebody to be out having extra boots on the ground, doing that kind of education like we were talking about, having those conversations about why protecting the resource is important. And really, uh, it's a good bang for your buck to have have that kind of presence in those places. Yeah, having those dispersed sites is, is uh, like I was saying earlier, it's so important for, for certain people to be able to, you know, still car camp, but maybe get away from people a little bit. So really protecting that, um, that privilege to be able to do that yep. going forward is, is so important to me and to you, I'm sure, and, and to a lot of people who like to come out here. It's really a privilege to be able to do that on our public lands. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's why so many of us value our national forests. It's, there's a certain kind of level of freedom that you maybe don't find in a national park or a campground, but it is, it's, it's exactly that. It's a privilege. and. If we can't can't manage our impacts, we'll lose our access. Yeah. What other projects are, do you have going on? Yeah, so uh, we're trying to focus our projects on mostly recreation and access because that's where we're seeing the increase, but also the budget cuts are most So that's really the kind of the core of your mission and what your organization does. Yeah, it's facilitating access and um, improving the visitor experience, but also making sure we're mitigating impacts. So anything where we can be connecting people or connecting communities to their public lands, but also mitigating impacts to watersheds or wildlife is really where we're focusing. Um, The Wyoming Range National Recreation Trail is a priority project for us. It's a 75-mile long trail that runs the length of the Wyoming Range. It should be on your on your next trip, um, and because there's just been such a shortage in trail staff, it's a nationally designated recreation trail that nobody can find. It's just been impossible to sign or yeah. maintain, and so that's that's one area that we're that we're looking um, and continuing to focus on those dispersed camping front country areas where we're getting lots of pressure. Um, the Grays River would be another mm-hmm. great place. Uh, to visit and do some fishing and do some car camping, but it could really use some additional on-the-ground presence to mitigate our impacts there. But our list of projects is very long. The the opportunities are huge, and we're just slowly chipping away at it. So what makes this place so special to you? The Greater Yellowstone, I mean, for me, it's the, it's the wildlife. It's We're the only place where you have a 200-mile-long mule deer migration still, and we still have all of our top predators. Um, We have these amazing core roadless areas, but then we still have access to the front country and can walk into the wilderness areas. Um, But the wildlife for me is what makes it, you know, even globally a really important ecosystem. And the Bridger-Teton National Forest is the whole southern half of the greater Yellowstone. So our parks are absolutely important and foundational and critical to those wildlife populations, but all of our public lands in that ecosystem deserve the same amount of support. So the Yellowstone National Park and Grand Teton, that's like the core of the ecosystem, right? And from there we have all the supporting landscape and the migrations, and even down into the valleys here in the private lands and the ranches where... Um, you know, elk and um, and deer come down to feed, right? So it's just yeah. kind of all this this big working natural landscape. It's so so with special. A lot of, with a lot of 
boundaries, um, but it is. It's one big ecosystem that takes a lot of partners working together. Um, we're, we're just amazingly lucky that we still have some of these migration routes that we still have and that we have these swaths of public land that have made it possible for these places to still be here. Um, so it's a, it's a big task. Are you concerned about oil and gas development and fracking out here? Um, I have not. There doesn't seem to be any pressing concerns on the Bridger Teton right now. I'd say probably talking to folks in Pinedale might be, might be the. I heard some of the mule deer populations have taken a big hit, like on the Upper Green area, and of course the sage grouse as well. But it seems it seems all these species are just so sensitive to any development, let alone. You know, oil and gas. Yep, and that, uh, and I know a lot of folks sometimes look out on the sagebrush landscape as just this desert, but it's such a unique ecosystem in itself that um, it's amazing what kind of impacts that that development can have. But we also, I think, some of the researchers we have in Wyoming are really at the forefront of this kind of research, and mm-hmm. they're getting really really critical research that's helping come up with constructive solutions as opposed to just saying this is this is bad and not working. Right. So I think I think Wyoming's really lucky to have some fantastic wildlife research going on. Yeah, there's some really neat corridor research and yeah. Yeah, just the way that species move across landscapes is, is pretty cool. So for people who want to visit out here, what would you tell them before they before they come out to minimize their impacts and do well by the wildlife and and have a good time out here? That's a great question. And safety and And, be safe. And and be safe. Um, I think anytime that you can get to a visitor center and get information firsthand is probably a great way to start off your trip. And you can do that at a forest service office or BLM office or town visitor center to get that kind of right information um, and up-to-date information. And then, again, just being aware of those leave-no-trace principles, being aware of what kind of land you're on and what's allowed. So just like you were saying, whether I'm in a, a dispersed camping area where I'm allowed to drive around versus designated wilderness is really important. Um, and I'd say just as things are getting more and more popular, to just be aware of tagging responsibly um one of my mm. friends recently yeah it's yeah this is a good it's starting good topic um starting to you know ask folks to hashtag a local business or visitor mm. center mm. or the wings as a whole mm-hmm. um and I, I think that could potentially have some positive impacts in the mm-hmm. long run yeah because these places that you visit today when you post especially to a real popular account then all of a sudden it may not be the same place that you knew and loved that you wanted to share with everybody. And now it's gone. Well, it's not gone, but it's, it's different, the, it's different right? Uh, the, the wildlife is pushed out. There's, there's more impacts from humans. Um, and, and these places do have intrinsic value. Yeah, that, that's a good way to put it. Um, yeah, and I know you've covered this uh, to some extent. And yeah, it's really and I'm sure listeners but, will hear about it ad nauseum, but it really <laughs> is important. It is important to, to develop a set of ethics, and it's not the same for everybody. And, it, you know, there is a gatekeeping issue, I suppose, but um, these are at least things that we need to be thinking about and talking about because social media, it's all about sharing, right? So, uh, and, and that's exactly what these companies want you to do is to share everything, Um but we need to take a step back and we need to think about 
the impacts that that this sort of um, uh, sharing might might be having on on the resources. Um, yeah, appreciate that. But yeah, I'd say get get to a visitor center. Um, try and get to know know your public land managers a little bit. Um, reach out to local nonprofits and see what you can do to help out in the area while you're out there. Pack out a piece of trash while you're in there too. Yeah, you know, kick a kick a stick off of the trail while mm-hmm. you're out there. I mean, it's there are public lands and that comes with some responsibility of stewardship. Yeah. Um, yeah. And have these conversations with your friends too, right? Absolutely. When you're sitting around the campfire, talk about all the things that we can be doing to, to try to keep these places intact and, and to maybe even make them a little bit better. Yeah. Um, so if people want to get involved with your organization, if they're local and they want to volunteer yeah. um, or people around the country who want to provide financial support, how can they do that? How can they learn about you? So btfriends.org, as in Bridger Teton Friends, um, btfriends.org. And, yeah, the great thing is there are so many opportunities to give back, you know, from volunteering to actual donations to just helping helping us get the word out about some of the more critical issues. Uh, we would would love to be in touch. Do you have any needs right now? Yeah, I mean, as we're a brand new organization with a limited staff capacity, financial donations will really enable us to play a critical role in a three and a half million acre forest, which is a pretty big task. Um, And any kind of support that we can expand our capacity, I think, will help us do a better job engaging local communities in storing their public land. And it's a big it's a big forest. And this is really kind of unique to have a friends group for a whole national forest or mm-hmm. friends groups for districts or ranges. Definitely all of our national parks have nonprofit partners, but this is our first go at trying to have a friends group for a whole national forest. And it's going to take some capacity, but it's also a pretty cool model to be able to engage local communities across the forest to make sure that everybody's involved and connected to their lands instead of just certain landscapes. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thanks for meeting with me today, Sarah. It was really nice to meet you. And um, I wish you luck with... Hey there, pup. Wish you luck with uh, with everything. And um, thanks for the great work that you do and for caring about this um, important landscape and this beautiful place. Thanks for coming and, and doing all your work to actually share everything that's great about the greater Yellowstone. I know you have, have had a good trip and have plenty more planned. So yep. you enjoy it. I still hope I have many years left, so I'll, I'll be making it out here every year I can. Love it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of wilderness podcast. You can find us online at wildernesspodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe through your podcasting app. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit wildernesspodcast.com backslash support. Thanks for listening.